Well, Father, we thank you for your grace that's greater than all our sins. We thank you for the work of redemption that your son accomplished on the cross. We thank you for the gospel and the community that it builds. And Father, I pray that this message will help build this gospel community, that we will seek to live lives of integrity. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, probably uh, the most famous pastor in America right now is a man by the name of Andy Stanley. You may know him on account of his father, Charles Stanley, who is a popular Baptist preacher in his own right. But his son pastors a large church of about 40,000 members, right? That's a lot. That's, I guess that's their attendees in suburban Georgia. Uh, and he not only has a large church, has written many books, he has uh, he sponsors what's called the Drive Conference, and his mission is to create churches that unchurched people love to attend, right? Create churches that unchurched people love to attend. Now, if you're in suburban Atlanta, or if you're in, really anywhere in America, and you want to create a church that unchurched people love to attend, there is one issue that would make that very difficult. You guys probably know what it is kind of the cultural shibboleth, what do you think about gay marriage? For much of the culture, they would never step foot in a church that sees it as a sin because the biblical teaching on the topic is responsible for so much self-loathing and youth suicide, and so there might be a tendency to want to relax and pull back on that issue, but here he is trying to create churches that unchurched people love to attend and if that is your philosophy of ministry, there is a real temptation to find a third way. Well, about six weeks ago, he hosted, his church hosted the Unconditional Conference. And the goal of the conference was to equip the parents of LGBT children to know how to shepherd their children, which on the face of it, I mean, that's a noble aspect that would be very difficult, I think, for any of us. I know some of you are in that situation yourselves. But during this conference, two of his main speakers were well-known, what we call gay-affirming uh, individuals who are actually in gay marriages themselves. He was hosting them at his church. Another was a prominent ethicist and theologian who changed his mind famously on the issue and now publicly advocates for a gay-affirming view of Scripture. Now, this caused a lot of alarm in evangelical circles, as Andy Stanley is one of the bellwether pastors in the United States, and where he goes, a large chunk of his following might go with him. And so he took a Sunday to respond to his critics, and he explained his philosophy of ministry is to draw circles, right? Jesus drew circles of inclusion instead of lines to exclude and then he made it very clear that our church believes what the Bible teaches, that marriage is between a man and a woman, period. And what's a sin then is a sin now, right? So far, so good. But then he explained that chastity for some of these people is unsustainable, and some of them will just go ahead and enter a gay marriage, and we're trying to figure out how to relate and minister to them. So, theoretically, we believe that it's wrong, but in practice, we won't treat it like it's wrong. This is called having it both ways. 
having it both ways. Have your cake and eat it too. We believe one thing, we practice another. You could say it's a breach of integrity. I would say it's also a form of hypocrisy. To say what you believe doesn't have to match what you preach or how you live is to create a dichotomy between your conviction and how you live. And you can understand that temptation, right? If your goal is to have a cultural platform to reach more people, there could be a certain temptation to want to compromise what you believe, or at least obscure it or hide it, so that you can have a broader cultural platform. To be open and honest about what you believe on this issue, well, it'd make you unpopular, and not only unpopular, it could lead to persecution. Now, when we look at the Pharisees, we often think of the, the Pharisees as just self-righteous hypocrites, but, but the reality is a little bit more complex than that. To be a Pharisee is an insult now, but it was a compliment back then. When Jesus preaches a Sermon on the Mount, he tells his crowd, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. And everyone thought, man, we are in big trouble. You see, the Pharisees were the people's pastors. The Sadducees had a different theological understanding, and they were given the privilege of overseeing the temple establishment by the puppet government established by Rome, right? They had power because of the establishment gave them power. Now, in the case of the Pharisees, the reason why they had power was an account of their popularity and people affirming them as the people's pastor, right? If you're the people's pastor, your power comes from the people. You lose the people, you lose the power. And Jesus is beginning to launch some broadsides against them. We just talked about the six woes to the Pharisees. And afterwards, as he went away from basically letting them know where they really are, exposing their hypocrisy, he's welcomed with this in Luke eleven fifty three through 54. As he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he's about to say or something he might say. And so they are holding to the law, but they're also trying to get rid of their adversary. They'd rather be known as godly than be godly. They kept the external appearance of righteousness to maintain their popularity. And then in 12.1, we see the swelling popularity of Jesus. In the meantime, when so many thousands of people had gathered together that they were trampling on one another, right? This was like the unruly crowd at a Chiefs game after a day of tailgating, right? They are unruly. They're trampling each other. And it was dangerous for that reason. But another reason was it would draw attention to Jesus, cause greater envy among the Pharisees, and give them more desire to get rid of him. But then there was another problem with that. He warns them, warns his disciples first, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Why do the crowds lead to this warning? See, a lot of times when you have a crowd, there can be a temptation to say, well, we must, do some, we must be doing something right. 
How do you explain the fact that 40,000 people come to our church? If a church is growing, there might be a temptation to say, well, because we're getting more numbers, we must be doing something right. There's a temptation, I think, in all of us to look at swelling numbers as proof that we are doing something right. And there can be a temptation at that point in time to please the crowds over pleasing the Lord. You don't want to give up your platform. So when we're saying being aware of the leaven of the, of the Pharisees, he's talking about how what's true of the Pharisees can spread to his disciples. Right? If you've ever baked before, you put in a little bit of a, a starter piece of dough, right, to, to leaven the whole lump. Or you add some yeast, you add some agent that percolates through the whole dough. And the idea is here that there is a level of hypocrisy in the scribes and Pharisees where what they present as their belief does not match their actual practice, right? They present themselves as people who fear God but don't actually fear God. And when you begin to divorce what you preach from what you believe and what you preach from what you practice, you begin to have a non-integrated life. You choose popularity over persecution. And the solution to that is to have an integrated life, is to be somebody with what I call evangelical integrity, where what you teach matches what you believe, and they both match how you live for the individual and for the community. You allow a little bit of hypocrisy. It spreads to the whole lump. Now, doing this will lead to persecution, which is why Jesus gives six reasons for evangelical integrity, starting in verse 2. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in the private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. I tell you, friends... Do not kill those, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more they can do. But I warn you whom to fear. Fear him who after he has killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies and not one of them is forgotten before God? Why, even the hairs of your head are numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man, also will acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And when they bring you before the synagogues and rulers and authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. This is a call for evangelical integrity. Eventually, Jesus is going to be crucified, resurrected, and raised up to heaven, and it will be just the disciples. And the disciples will draw big crowds, by the way. But they are never a slave to the crowds. Persecution will come. 
all those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, right? And there is a belief that you can choose popularity without being persecuted. But this is all about the orientation of your life, right? True Christianity fears the Lord, not men. We please the Lord, not men. And there will come times of decision. Somebody at high school has taken an interest in you and will potentially welcome you into that popular social circle that you long for. But then they offer you a beer. What do you do? Do you even go as far as to invite them to the youth group or even share the gospel? What will happen then? You've cultivated a relationship with this customer for a long time. He opens his heart about some of the issues that's going on in his life, perhaps his marriage. Wide open opportunity to share the gospel with him, but you think, you know what, if I go forward with this, I might lose the deal. Or perhaps you've cultivated a relationship with your professor. This professor could write a good letter of recommendation to get you into the graduate school of your dreams. But are you open about what you believe and that you're that kind of Christian? See, there's a temptation in all of us to want to maintain some kind of Christian identity because we know we should. They have a form of Christianity that is somehow acceptable to God and acceptable to the masses. But at some point in time, you will have to choose. You can please one, but not the other. If you pretend to be a Christian that's acceptable to the world, eventually they'll call you a hypocrite. If you pretend to be a Christian that's acceptable to, to God, pretending that's the key, then you'll be a hypocrite then. In the end, living your life with conviction means you integrate what you believe with what you teach with how you live. That is evangelical integrity. So why do that if it's going to cost you so much? Well, the first reason is you will be exposed. You'll be exposed. Everything's going to come to light. Look at verse 2. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark will be heard in the light. And what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. Your double life, if you have one, will come out. The pastor acts one way at home and another way at church, it will come out. The Christian who acts one way at home and one way at church and another way at the office, it'll all come out. You see, if you're going to live a double life, it's a very stressful thing to live a double life because you have to keep two separate worlds, right? You've got to have your work world and your church world and you need to make sure that those worlds do not overlap. So you never talk to your work world about your church world. You don't mention that. They're actually surprised that you even go to church. You laugh at their jokes. You are silent about your faith. You condone unethical business practices. This is your work world. Now, in your church world, you don't talk about what you do at work, and you don't bring your work friends to church because they might realize that you're a Christian and that you go to that kind of a church. 
So you try to keep them all separate and you don't want them integrated, right? It's important to live a double life. Well, what Jesus says is both of those worlds are going to come out. All is going to be exposed. Verse 2, nothing covered up, nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Conversations, the jokes, the media choices, what you do in your free time, what you do when you're alone, it's all going to come out. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light. And what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. This is a call to live your life like it's all going to come out. Now, I've shared this story before, but it is a powerful cautionary tale. Ravi Zacharias, you guys heard of him? Really, during the last 20, 30 years of his life, he was regarded as the greatest Christian apologist alive. He's articulate, winsome, great storyteller. And I remember when he passed away, there was this grieving in evangelicalism that this was a great loss. But then there were some things that came out. He was a frequent visitor to massage parlors. He owned massage parlors. And the extent of his double life was absolutely incredible. It all came out. It all came out. And we saw it. Now, some people will have double lives and it will not come out until they are standing before the Lord. We, we may never even know about it, but the thing is, the Lord knows about it. He knows if you're living a double life. It'll all come out. Now, there are some of you who are living an integrated life. You do have integrity. And no one knows the good that you do. They don't know about the secret acts of service, the times you try to share the gospel, the fervency of your prayer life, how you read the scriptures with passion and conviction. You know what? All that's going to come out too. It's not all bad, right? So why should you live your life with evangelical conviction? It's all going to come out anyway. So integrate your life. Make it one life. Live with integrity. Secondly, you will face the judge. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more they can do. Now, he's talking about a real fear here. Somebody who can kill the body. Right now, we have some fears that stop short of that, like cancellation, social shaming. But he's talking about don't fear the person who can kill the body. Now, we are living in a world right now where that might be difficult to imagine, but there are certain events that are taking place where I think we kind of see how that can actually take place. On October 7th, members of the terrorist group Hamas crossed the border into Israel and murdered 1,000 civilians. And not just murdered them. We're talking like savage, cruel, inhumane. I can't believe they actually have the imagination to do something so dark killing people. And that's not the scariest part, in my opinion. The scariest part is how many people on college campuses and in the intellectual elite thought the people of Hamas had a point, that somehow 
this type of murder is justified because Israel is an oppressor state. And we all know that if you are on the side of the oppressor or the privilege, is murder really that wrong if they're oppressors? And who's to say that, they, that that moral logic, which is bankrupt, might not be turned against the church, right? People, one of the favorite narratives that people love to hear is these poor people who grow up in church and were oppressed by Christian theology. We need to rescue these children from their fundamentalist right-wing parents. And what better way to rescue them from these oppressors than to, well, we're not going to do it, but if somebody else does it, they had it coming. Right? Isn't that it? So that can create a lot of fear. And fear can lead to compromise. Now, there was a real fear in, ancient, uh, in the ancient church. During that time, during the spread of New Testament Christianity, did you know that there are actually two official religions? One official religion was the religion of Rome, which they kind of borrowed heavily from the Greek religion. You know, they worshiped Jupiter, Neptune, and all these Roman gods. But there was another religion. Judaism was recognized as an official religion. See, part of the Roman religion allowed for emperor worship that mandated it, but the Jews were such a pain, were so unruly, would, go, would rather die than worship the emperor that the Romans finally said, okay, you're an official religion, okay? You just do you. We have two now. And so as long as Christianity spread under the guise of Judaism, right, and was seen as a sect of Judaism, it had protection. But then Paul, with his understanding of the gospel, goes around and tells Gentiles that you don't have to be circumcised. You don't need to become a Jew to become a Christian. You can become a Christian apart from being a Jew and that led to some moral panic. That's part of the reason why the Judaizers would go around saying, you need to have them circumcised, otherwise our church might be persecuted and banned because we're not an official religion. The desire to avoid persecution, the fear of those who can kill the body, caused them to ignore the one who they should truly fear. Verse 5, but I warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Now, hell. Jesus says hell. Now, the word hell literally is Gehenna. It was a uh, ravine southwest of Jerusalem where pagans of old would sacrifice their children to Moloch. It was a garbage heap. They would dispose of the dead bodies of criminals there, and the flames would always go up. It basically uh, expanded into the modern understanding of hell, a place of, of eternal conscious torment, right? And this is Jesus speaking. Now, some soft-hearted people might look at this and say, is it really a good thing to motivate people with hell? Shouldn't we tell people that God is love, that God is a loving God, and a loving God would never want to terrorize people into obedience? But you know what? You, you never want to be more spiritual than Jesus. Jesus says it. He says, you need to fear this. Before you compromise your integrity, 
before you mix up the gospel and accept something like circumcision and say, yeah, you need to be circumcised, you need to remember that when you pervert the gospel for the sake of people, when you deny your allegiance to Jesus, well, there is a special place in hell. You see, in the end, one of the solutions to fear is a greater fear, right? As much as you might fear a terrorist, as much as you might fear for your life and dying a cruel death, there is a fate worse than that. Jesus says you need to have evangelical integrity because God ultimately is your judge. But then he goes from bad cop to good cop. He says, you will be comforted. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God? Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, are you are of more value than many sparrows. Well, God will cast the hypocrites into hell. He will comfort those who belong to him. And he uses an argument from the lesser to the greater. Now, a sparrow was cheap meat. Five sparrows were sold for two pennies. That would be the equivalent of one hour of a working man's wages for one day. It's the cheapest meat you can find. And so, I don't know, eating sparrows would be like eating possum, right? It's the cheapest, most inedible, unappetizing meat you can find. But God has regard for the life of the sparrows or the possum. I don't like possums, by the way, there. They spook me and scare me. You never know if they're really dead. (laughs) So if he cares about those sparrows, how much more does he care about you? In fact, he knows the number of hairs on your head. If If it's shrinking, he knows it. He knows every follicle. He has regard for you. He knows when five sparrows are sold. He knows how much hair you have. He has a special regard for you. He knows when you are misrepresented. He knows when you are maligned. He knows when you are the subject of gossip. He knows when you are feeling isolated on account of your faith. I think about Psalm 116, 15. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. No one can lay a finger on you unless God decrees it. And should you die, that is precious in his sight. If you get fired... For practicing what you preach, God has a special regard for you. If someone no longer wants to be your friend because of what you believe and you're one of those Christians, God has a special regard for you. He knows that persecution is painful, but he doesn't leave you to suffer alone. He actively comforts you. You can live with evangelical integrity because when it does get hard, There is comfort that's promised. Fourth, you will give an account. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man, will also acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. Right? Angels of God would be like God himself. If you affirm me before man, I will affirm you before the angels. If you deny me before man, I'll deny you before the angels of God. Deny you basically in the day of judgment. Now, on the most basic level, this is talking about those you're called to be, uh, to give an account in front of synagogues and the Sanhedrin and other councils. You think about Paul, who would go before kings and have an opportunity to affirm or deny Jesus Christ. 
You think about Stephen who stood before an unruly mob and, and affirmed his name. But there's also an everyday application here, right? Is, is living your life unashamed of the gospel that you have embraced and believed. You look at Romans 1.16. Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also for the Greek. Not ashamed. Now, there are forms of evangelism that have been taught that try to split the difference between popularity and persecution. The idea is you need to earn the right to be an evangelist. You need to earn the right to share your faith. You need to be a friend first, and then after a lengthy period of time, you can gradually weave in the gospel. Now, there's some problems with this. Number one, this strikes me as disingenuous. If Christ is the most important thing in your life, if it's essential to your identity, how can you be a real friend with someone and keep this from them? Well, I would imagine they'd say, so I've known you for two years and you're a Christian. I, what other secrets are you keeping from me? Secondly, it reveals a lack of faith in the gospel. You think that your friendship has more potency than the gospel. That it's them liking you that will lead them to Christ instead of the gospel will lead to their salvation. And thirdly, it conveys the idea that the gospel is something that you're embarrassed by. You don't want them to know, yeah, I'm one of those Christians. Yeah, this is technically what it says. Instead of, I love this word, I love this message, I'm not ashamed of it. When you're ashamed of the gospel, you're essentially denying it. If you hold back on it for self-preservation, I mean, what does that say about you? Do you remember when Jesus healed the man born blind? Clear miracle. And the authorities contacted his parents and they wanted to know who, who, who did this. And his parents said in, in 9.22, they, they would not confess Christ. Why? His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. And to be put out of the synagogue when your whole town was built around it, that's to be excluded from everyone. That's to be a guaranteed pariah. Yeah, I guess somebody healed our son. We don't know who it is. Ask him. They wouldn't stand by. Jesus says, or John says in John 12, 42, nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogues. They feared the persecution that comes from others. They kept a low profile. And they preserved themselves. They kept the regard of other men, but what would God think about this? this embarrassment, this shame, this distancing that, 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 they, that they have. Now, ladies, let's say you get on some internet matchmaking site and you, you make contact with a very handsome young man who is from Kansas and is studying medicine at Harvard. He's a Christian, he goes to church. You guys have this amazing chemistry you, he visits you, and then 
after multiple visits, they're kind of wondering when you get to meet his family, and he goes ahead and he invites you to a banquet that's being hosted by his parents. You put on your best outfit. You drive up to Johnson County. He takes you to his parents' house, which is in a gated community. And you show up. There's a string quartet. There's all those tents on the lawn. Everyone is wearing tuxedos and black dresses. There's a bunch of food that you can't pronounce. And, the, and you walk in with him. And as you walk in, the first sign of trouble comes where one of the guests asks if you're part of the catering service in front of your boyfriend. And he doesn't answer the question. You said, oh, I'm, I'm actually with him. And you reach out to hold his hand and he pulls it away. And then as you kind of mingle with other people, they ask you, what do you do? You said, well, I'm actually a student at Emporia State University. And they kind of give you the, how nice, in a condescending way. Emporia State, oh. And then you meet his parents. And uh, they kind of ask you all the questions. And then say, so how do you guys know each other? And you're waiting for your boyfriend to say, she's my girl. But he says, we're just friends. You know that cup of punch that you have? You kind of like poured into his lap, right? You make a scene, listen to some Garth Brooks, and you're, you're out. He's embarrassed by you. Can you imagine having a relationship with somebody who's embarrassed by you? What would God think of you being embarrassed by him? Yeah, I'm kind of with him. Yeah, I kind of follow Jesus. Not all the time, though. You know, I'm not one of those Christians. And isn't that the temptation? I'm not one of those Christians. And a lot of times they don't poke fun at Jesus. They'll poke fun at his church. Be hypercritical and only say bad things about the church. And I'm not one of them. Trust me, I'm not one of them. Yeah, I hate them too. You're embarrassed. You're embarrassed. And if you're embarrassed about Jesus Christ, if you're embarrassed about his truth, and if you're embarrassed about his people, that's a form of denial. And Christ will be embarrassed about you before him. Live with evangelical integrity so that when the time comes, he will affirm you before the judge. Now, some of you have been embarrassed. You have kept quiet, and I have some good news for you. You will receive forgiveness. Look at verse 10. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Now, if you look carefully, everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. That does not imply that everyone is forgiven because only those who affirm him before men, right? Only those who affirm him before men will be affirmed before the Father. This speaks of a category of people who affirm Jesus and falter. None more famous than Peter. In contrast, you have those who blaspheme the Holy Spirit. Now, I've taught about this elsewhere. When you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, you take a clear miracle 
of the Holy Spirit, like casting out a demon, and you attribute that to the work of Satan. Now, if you're scared that you might commit it, this probably doesn't apply to you. In fact, it doesn't. It is for the people who are so hardened in their unbelief that they take the work of God and call it the work of the devil. When you're that hardened and that set against Christ and the Holy Spirit, there's no future for you. But, but if you believe in Christ and you have denied him like Peter, there still is hope. One of the most interesting persecution stories is about Thomas Cramner. Thomas Cramner was one of the leading theologians in the Church of England. He helped put together the Book of Common Prayer. If you grew up in an Anglican or Episcopalian background, you would know the work. Well, during the reign of Mary Tudor, the Catholic Queen demanded that all the bishops and members of the state church at the time hold to the Catholic teaching of the Eucharist. They had to believe that the elements actually became the body and blood of Christ. Now, Cramner couldn't do that with a clean conscience because that would be blaspheme because he would actually worship wine and worship bread. But then he saw the martyrdom of two bishops, Latimer and, and Ridley, and he reconsidered. With his life on the line, he decided to recant his evangelical positions. Now, delighted with the recantation, Mary... The queen made public arrangements for him to publicly recant his faith. She also told Cramner, you're still going to die, by the way. But it's going to be a more humane treatment of death. So Cramner got up before the queen and the assembly, talked about his weaknesses and his faults, and they expected him to conclude his message with an official recantation that he's gone home to Rome. But this is how he ended his message. He says of his confession that he wrote down and signed, They were written contrary to the truth which I thought in my heart, and written for fear of death to save my life if it might be. And for as much as I have written many things contrary to what I believe in my heart, my hand shall first be punished, for if I may come to the fire, it shall be burned. As for the Pope, I refuse him, for Christ's enemy and Antichrist with all his false doctrine. The queen got upset and burned him, and he stuck his hand in the fire first. Now, we often think that a better story would have been if he would have stood strong the whole time, but he did it, right? But I think there's a redeeming quality to this where if you have failed, if you have denied Christ, if you have been the silent Christian, if you've gone undercover, if you've done things that you're ashamed of, you know what? There is forgiveness for you. There is forgiveness for you, but it involves turning, not being ashamed, affirming. There is mercy for all those who do that. As far as blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, don't worry about it. If you're worried about it, don't worry about it. It's not for you. Have a soft heart. There is forgiveness for those who fall short. And for those of you who are not really sure about yourself, whether or not you can stand firm, there's another promise given in verse 11 through 12. 
And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Now, when I coach people on evangelism, they're afraid of two things. One is persecution. And secondly, they're always afraid they're going to choke. Do you know what I mean? You got the golden opportunity, bases loaded, game seven of the World Series, down by two runs, the pitch of your dreams comes across the plate, and you're afraid you're going to choke. If that is you, here's the promise. But when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you are to say. In that moment, the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. He gave words to Thomas Cramner. He gave words to Stephen. Remember Acts 6.10. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit in which he was speaking. And then they brought him before the whole crowd, and he gave one of the most compelling arguments for Scripture that we see in the New Testament. Now, don't take this the wrong way. I knew of a pastor who told me that he doesn't like to over-prepare for messages because he wants to wait for the Holy Spirit to give him words to speak. That's not what this is talking about. Okay, I've got manuscripts here, all my things. I prepared. But if you're afraid of choking... <laughs> Open your mouth. Just run with it. And just trust that the Holy Spirit is real and active. He'll bring the scriptures to mind, God's truth to mind, and he will help you be a bold witness for him. See, when you look at all of this, this is a call to evangelical integrity where, where God wants his people to take what they believe and teach it and practice it, to do so as a community, to stand together as a community. This, incidentally, is why we practice church discipline. Do you know that? Part of the reason why we practice church discipline is when people are hypocrites, we want to call them to evangelical integrity that what you say needs to match what you believe. Right? Hypocrisy is one of the great blights on the church. And when Christians compromise mute their message, what they're doing is they're playing into that seed form of hypocrisy and that leaven, if accepted, will spread to the whole church. And frankly, people in the world are not, embrace, in the world are not impressed by hypocrites, are they? When people say one thing and believe another, they will say, where's your spine? <laughs> God is not impressed by hypocrites. He doesn't use hypocrites. Or if he does use them, it's in spite of them, on mercy of the person they're ministering to, not because of them. Nobody's impressed by hypocrites, and yet there is a temptation to think that if I just please the world, if I just maintain this platform, I will have a more fruitful and effective ministry. The truth is, when you live your life with evangelical integrity, that makes an impact. Philippians 1, 27 through 30. And this is a great statement of evangelical integrity. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Notice the message matches your manner of life. So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you 
that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, side by side, for the faith of the gospel. And then I love this line. And not frightened in anything by your opponents. Right? Without fear. And notice the impact. This is a clear sign of, of, to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. Fearless evangelism, fearless preaching, fearless conviction strikes fear in the heart of those who watch it. Now, it is unsaid, but I think when Jesus said this, there was one individual that was deep in the minds of the disciples. Do you know who that would be? John the Baptist. Man without a price. Spoke truth to power. Told the Pharisees where they could go. Told Herod what was wrong with his life. And eventually he would be beheaded. John the Baptist was the greatest man that ever lived because he lived his life with integrity. And that is what the Lord is calling us to do. And if you fear that you can't do it, you've got to remember the warnings, but also remember the promises. He will comfort you. He'll give you the words to say. I'd say he'd even give you the courage to stand up to say the truth and leave the results to, to God. And when we live this way and believe this way, we'll have nothing to fear, right? Our lives will be an open book. We practice what you preach, just examine it. And then we will see God's truth change and transform not only you all, but a watching world. Let's pray. Father, we come before you thankful for the teachings of Jesus to call us to live lives of evangelical integrity. And Father, should anyone have been convicted by this, and they know that there's some area in their life that you would disapprove of that is inconsistent with the message we teach, believe, and, and seek to live, that they'll repent. They'll know that there's forgiveness waiting for them and that they will double down like Thomas Cramner I thank you for all those who do live with evangelical integrity, and I pray that this will motivate them to do more so, that they'll look forward to that great day when all will be laid to light, and including their, their lives of integrity. And I pray that as we engage with this community, that we'll be known as a church that practices what we preach, that we believe in Jesus, that he's coming again to judge the living and the dead, that we believe in the forgiveness and grace given to us by Jesus, and we extend that grace and forgiveness to others. And that we'll have a certain urgency that you have a mission for us and we'll be unashamed of the calling to do so, and that you will bless our efforts. In Christ's name, amen.